When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on extroverts making friends in their 30s, being respectful at religious ceremonies when you're not religious, sample scripts for soon-to-be mothers trying to stay healthy, and electric car etiquette. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about at-home cards. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript on our number five most searched topic on emilypost.com, formal place setting. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. We got the funniest DM from one of our listeners on Instagram, and we had to repost it to the Emily Post Institute Instagram account, and it's hysterical. Go Awesome Etiquette audience. Go Instagram. This was original dining etiquette humor. I feel like I've heard everything when it comes to knives and spoons and forks (laughs) and how you use them. But this alien comic with a parent teaching a child alien how to use these strange new utensils got a original laugh out of Lizzie Post and Dan Setting when we saw it for the first time. The account Nathan W. Pyle's Strange Planet posted a comic and it's like a four panel of aliens teaching their kid table manners. And it says, please cease stabbing with your slicer. Your stabber stabs, your slicer slices, and your scooper scoops, pipes the, the other alien parent. Sometimes the stabber slices. When substance is soft. I know how to ingest, the little alien child says. But we don't want other beings to know that you know. So they know that we know. (laughs) Stabber, slicer, scooper, and the witness, the observer of the dining etiquette experience, all wrapped up in one. Well, And the whole idea that, like, parenting is, no, it's not about that you can ingest the food. It's about that other people know that we taught you how to ingest the food. (laughs) It's so great. (laughs) It was so apropos. We will be doing our postscript on this show about the formal place setting. So pardon us as we descend into table manners and dining etiquette for just a moment. This is us geeking out. (laughs) It is a delicious place for an etiquette expert. Nice. (laughs) All jokes aside, should we get to some questions today? Let's do it.
Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com, leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND, that's 802-858-5463, or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst, on Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute, and on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day... We here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question today comes from an exhausted extrovert. Dear Dan and Lizzie, I hope that you and your amazing podcast can help me with something I've been struggling with as an adult, how to make new friends. My husband and I live in a major city, but feel that our friend group is shrinking as more and more of us millennials move due to high cost of living. Now that I am in my 30s and can no longer just walk up to someone on the playground and say, want to be friends? I'm getting nervous, and it seems our social circle is getting smaller and smaller. I am a textbook extrovert, and often am told I come on too strong when meeting others. I hate this, because to me, I am just behaving the way I would like to be treated, and also because if I do not socialize regularly, I become very depressed, a common issue for extroverts like myself. There seems to be so much out there about understanding introverts, but little being done to explain extroverts. We are solar-powered, and spending time with others is our sunshine. I am confused by the social dance that seems to happen when we meet a new couple, and I am not sure how to move forward. For example, at a cooking class, we met another couple around our age who were lovely and lived in our neighborhood. I got their numbers and texted them asking if they wanted to get together at a local wine bar the following weekend on President's Day. 
It took them a while to reply, and when they did, they were going out of town. I understand not everyone is glued to their phone, so I tried to be understanding. But I am now not sure if I should try to reach out again or take it as a sign they are not interested in getting together. On top of this, there is an extra level of confusion that due to my job, calendar management is my life. So when someone invites me to do something and it doesn't work, I always counter back with the time that does. I am never sure if people who just say no are brushing me off, unaware they are being a little rude but not telling me when would work for them, or just something else. What do you think I should do with this couple and moving forward in the future as I try to keep our social circle as large as I can? Oh, extrovert, I am so glad that you wrote in to us because you're right. We do so often hear about introverts. It's nice to hear the other side of it and then where the etiquette dilemmas occur. But this is something I struggle with, too. I feel like I can sometimes be very, yeah, I'm so excited to meet you and let's get together and that would be great. And you kind of follow that in-person enthusiasm up with an enthusiastic invitation and then silence. Or sometimes a no without, like you're saying, a follow-up of when we could. Sometimes when you're inviting new people into your crowd, it can be easier to do it in a group setting. Sometimes inviting them to that, maybe if it's the holidays, the holiday party, or a bigger backyard barbecue, or maybe... I, I don't know, you know, just a larger night where more is going on and they can kind of feel like, oh, I could I could come or I could not come. And there's not quite as much pressure on a new friendship. Um, that That's just one of one of the ways that you might approach it in the future. I had a really similar thought. I was thinking about how you can lean on social structures and groups as well. And I was my advice was become a joiner. Yeah. Look for things that are already going on. Yeah, events. And in some ways, the cooking class that was the beginning of what we hope will be a new friendship here sounds like an example of that. But I would say really lean into that. Keep looking for things that fit in your schedule that are aligned with your interests and participate, participate, participate. Instead of thinking of yourself as the center of that social circle, look for social circles that you can easily tap into and just do That's it. That's a good idea, too. With a lot of enthusiasm. I hadn't thought about that. Like, if you know of groups of friends, like, I don't want to say try to get into them because that sounds silly. But at the same time, this couple, it sounds like they had a lot of friends and now people are moving away. And the question is, how do we make those new friends? And I like your idea of you're at the cooking class. Let that cooking class environment be what stews that friendship, percolates that friendship, heats up that friendship. I don't know what kind of cooking metaphor we want to use there. But I think that that's actually the good place to do it. That maybe, I don't want to say maybe it was too soon to invite for an out-of-class get-together, but it's just that class offers, especially if it's a regular one, it offers repeated weeks of getting to know someone. I know the puppy classes that I take my dog to. I kind of have now my puppy social and my puppy class friends. And now there are some of them I'd probably be willing to say like, hey, do you want to get together and like, you know, take the dogs for a walk or something like that? Or, you know, you might suggest to this other couple, do you guys want to come over and cook something we learned from class? I think that is a perfect example. It might take a little patience and that can be hard for an extrovert for whom that human contact is like sunshine. And I love that description. That is so nice to hear someone who feels that way about connecting with other people. But it might just take the same amount of time that, believe it or not, a lot of those established friendships required when they were beginning also. 
It wasn't just that you walked up on the playground and said, do you want to be my friend? There's right. a good chance that you were at daycare or at school with those people or at the same community park that you visited repeatedly. Those friendships had time to germinate and grow as well. And it might just require that at this stage in life also. The thing that you're describing happens. It is a phenomenon that people have identified that it gets harder and harder yeah. to make friends later and later in life. I do think there's something that happens around retirement where people trip over a certain line and all of a sudden they start being parts of communities where there's a lot of free time, a lot of emphasis on social engagement and activity. So keep your keep your hopes and your spirits up. There will be a moment where I think it'll start to go the other way again as well. But at this more difficult stage, lean into the etiquette of interactions. And this is where we can give some good etiquette advice. So you've made an invitation that didn't get a good RSVP. Don't let that dissuade you. That is a general problem today. It's okay to issue a follow-up invitation. It's okay to continue to reach out and engage people and just remind yourself not to take it personally. Exactly. You don't want to feel like you have to take this too personally or that it means that you can't reach back out to someone for an invitation following up. You certainly can. One thing I want to go back to, though, is the idea of where you can meet new people as an adult. Come on. You didn't actually talk about it. Like there are actual meetup groups. There are clubs you can join. There are things like that. One thing I want to go back to, though, is that in the world we have today, there are so many places to make friends as adults. You know, this particular question references a cooking class, but also think of clubs that you can join, common interest groups that you can join. I think that those kinds of things offer you a starting point with people. And when it is a place you're going to go repeatedly, consistently, you know, you do start to become part of another community. Um, for me here in Burlington, Vermont, that was a golf course, you know. And I know for uh, Dan, you you met your wife through dance community. Um, but there are also, I used to run a soccer league through a website called Meetup. And there are ways to use things like online online groups and online organizing to, to also find other adults uh, to, to befriend. As far as this particular couple from the cooking class and advice on moving forward, we've said definitely don't take it personally. Issue another invite. Keep your antenna out. Notice if someone said no a couple times in a row or the feeling you're getting about the no. And sometimes that's the lack of engagement. Sometimes there's a, oh, no, we can't do it, but we would so love to. Right. <laughs> Listen to that when someone tells you that and definitely try again. You might end up needing to be a bit of a leader in this situation and embrace your identification as an extrovert, play that role, become that person that connects people in your community. I am sure there are other people out there who are feeling similar to you or who could really use someone like you in their life. Extrovert, thank you for the question. We wish you the best of luck moving forward, and please keep us posted. We want to hear more about how this is going, what works, and what doesn't. I guess Joe's friendship turned out to be sort of infectious. From Joe, I learned how to be a friend and how to make friends. That one friendship often leads to others. And best of all, to appreciate and enjoy people of many varying backgrounds and personalities. Yes, sir. With friends, it's a great old world. Our next question is titled, Pregnant and Panicked. It's probably not what you're thinking. 
Hello, Lizzie and Dan. My friend is a therapist who works one-on-one with clients. One of her clients just came back from an affected part of China and just got off quarantine for two weeks for a virus. She did not contract it, but was exposed. It seems like it would be safe to see the client, but my friend is also very pregnant and nervous. Would you have any sample script advice if she does not feel comfortable seeing her, but can offer to Skype with her? The client is waiting for a reply and has had some stressful life events, so I'm hoping to help her come up with something soon. Any help you can provide would be extremely appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do and all of the wonderful advice and kindness you put out into the world. Anonymous. I think that given the nature of the fact that the the therapist is pregnant um, and trying to make decisions, you know, based on herself and keeping herself healthy during the pregnancy, that that just gives her such a, a, a thing to lean on if she is willing to share about the pregnancy. I don't know how far along in the pregnancy we are. And so if it's too early, you might make the exception and say, you know, this no isn't someone in my very inner circle, but given what I'm going to ask them to do, I feel I should or I feel comfortable giving this explanation. I think you, you ask and you offer what you're willing to do during the period that there's any question. I also think call your doctor and, and talk to your doctor about it. Make sure it really is a risk. Um, and that's always a good thing, too. From an etiquette standpoint, I just think try and be calm when you do make the offer. You might even pick up the phone and call rather than rather than do it via email. Sometimes if, if you I mean, obviously, this is a therapist. They know their client well. They might know that actually an email would be better because it gives the person time to absorb, read, ask questions, think of questions to ask that kind of stuff. So lean into your best skills knowing the person that you're dealing with. But also, you know, I think this this would be a case where I, I, I can't speak on behalf of the client, but as a therapy client, I would say if my therapist said something like this to me, I'd be like, I would totally appreciate a Skype call. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would appreciate setting that up. Thanks for offering that. Like, you know what I mean? It would be you came to me with a solution for something you're worried about. Thank you. I like all of that. I like setting yourself up with some information. Talk to a doctor. Talk to a health professional. Prepare yourself emotionally for that discussion. Think about how much you're comfortable sharing about your own situation because that can be a really good entree into a discussion that tells someone that you're really engaged. I also like your idea of thinking about the type of communication. I like the explicit offer of ways to continue to stay connected so that someone knows that it's not that you're trying to avoid them, their problems, their situations, that you want to work with them, you want to find a solution. This is just something you're dealing with. Having loved being in therapy for years and years and years, um, there's always that time when something's going on and your therapist has a vacation planned and you're like, no, don't go. I need you now. And um, if this person is someone who has some, you know, struggles going on, uh, then I could I could see such relief in being offered some kind of alternative than just canceling the session. Like there were definitely times where it was just please don't cancel the session. Please don't. Just please like give me some way of talking to you because you're just so helpful in my life right now, you know. This is such a topical question. I'm about to give such a an old reference. Yeah. And I'm guessing this is coronavirus even though it hasn't been explicitly stated in this question, but it 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 seems like it's about a very topical issue right now. But the way you describe the therapist relationship, 
what about Bob just came oh, to oh, my oh, mind. Totally, totally, totally. As far as the etiquette advice, and it would work for Bill Murray, and I hope it can work in this much less humorous situation, is that it is okay to set boundaries. In fact, it's an important thing to be able to do both in your personal and professional lives. And this is a professional relationship. So I would keep my explanations about those boundaries in a slightly more formal framework and you establish that with tone, clarity of language, um, deciding ahead of time how much personal information you're going to share. This is a professional relationship and you want to keep this whole discussion really squarely in that whole framework. But it is important. It's important that you're able to do it to maintain those relationships both personally and professionally. So this answer is also about permission to do that and and really do that in a way that makes it possible for you to continue the relationship or your, in this case, your friend to continue the relationship. Anonymous, we hope this advice helps and that it reaches you in time to help your friend. We cannot keep all germs from entering our bodies, but wise old nature has placed within us natural forces capable of fighting the invading armies of disease. Every step we take to prevent the spread of disease means increased happiness and greater living efficiency for all of us. Our next question is titled, Not Religious, But Respectful. Good afternoon, AE team. I've been listening to the Awesome Etiquette podcast for a few months now, and I'm really enjoying it. I have a question that relates to weddings, funerals, and other religious services that may be attended by those that do not share the same faith. I would like to be polite when attending these services, but have no religious experience to draw upon. I was raised agnostic. My go-to for years was to just stand, sit, and kneel as the rest do, but I do not sing, pray, or participate in communion. I was recently taken aback during a recent service when I was unexpectedly hugged by strangers during the service. I found it uncomfortable. How much should I participate to be considered polite during religious services? Thank you ever so much, Molly. This brings up so many good points. Molly, this is such a good question. There is so much cross-cultural navigation going on here. It reminds me a lot of good questions about international etiquette, how you prepare yourself to interact in situations where there are very specific manners, but you might not be familiar with them. And the stakes are a little higher. There is a a certain, I don't even want to call it formality, but heightened sense of propriety and attention paid to how people are behaving. I think also with that, there's the sense that you don't want to over-participate to the point that you are then actually participating in a religion that you aren't practicing. So, for instance, Molly's referencing she doesn't go take communion. You know, that's something you're supposed to go through a a, a process, a religious rite, is that what you call it? Ritual, thank you. That's something that you that you actually go through kind of at a certain age and a certain time in your um, in your path when it comes to Catholicism, for instance. And so it's it's important to re- it's it's hard to know if you don't know 
what is something that you really shouldn't participate in and something that you might be asked to participate in but would like to decline participation in that's and that's hard like that there's a there's a moment in catholic services where it's peace be with you and oftentimes during a weekly service throughout the year that's a handshake but at the holidays that's often a hug and you know there are other religions too where where that can happen and you don't know like would it be rude to say no but no I don't really want to hug can I stick a hand out for a shake instead. It's very complex. (laughs) So first step, do a little bit of work ahead of time. Prepare yourself going into these situations. And some of those answers might be as simple as a Google search away. But I would also strongly recommend talking to the point of contact. So if there's a particular person that's invited you to come with them, or if it's something like a funeral. Think about calling ahead to the venue, asking if there's someone there you could talk to about what to expect. Identify yourself as someone who's not as familiar with the faith tradition or with the particular type of service that you'll be attending or event or whatever it is and ask and then really be prepared to listen and hear what it is they're saying. Have a little list of questions, things like what is it appropriate for me to wear What can I expect to happen over the course of the service? Are there any um, major things that I should be aware of? There are some services where it would be really radically inappropriate to touch anyone or where you're going to want to cover your head or remove your shoes. And people will be ready to tell you these things. It won't be the first time they've dealt with them as a hosting organization or location. Also be prepared for the occasional time when when you will be asked to more be an observer rather than an included participant. There may be those times where it said, you know, just kind of come, but observe, don't lean in too much. And there's places where that can be respected, too, even though it can feel awkward to get that message delivered to you. It doesn't mean you're not welcome. I really like how you're thinking about this. To me, it says that you're going to do well. The fact that you're paying attention, that you're thinking about it is the best possible indication that you're going to engage in these new situations well. And I also just want to finish by applauding you for trying new things and for exposing yourself to all of these different situations. They are so rich. Molly, thank you for the question. That ever happens, I want to be ready. I want to be ready physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually. How about you? Our next question is titled Electric Car Etiquette. Dan, you should read this one. Did you write it? I didn't, but I love it. (laughs) Dear Lizzie and Daniel, I'm in the process of buying my first plug-in hybrid and thinking about how to charge it. I'm hoping you can help me understand what the etiquette is around using plug-in electric vehicle public charging stations. None of the public stations I have so far observed post information about whether one treats the space as a regular parking spot for however long you need it versus any requirement to move the car once it is completely charged. In some cases, this time is self-limiting when the charger is located in a metered lot, but in free parking locations, there is no such incentive. My feeling is that when possible, an EV owner should move their car once it is completed charging, but in practice, I'm not sure that works. Some network charge stations will notify the owner via an app when the vehicle is charged, others not. A driver may want to spend more time parked and otherwise occupied, for example, a movie, class, or other event, than the time charging takes. If the parking location is popular, leaving the charge station to find a normal spot may be difficult. I welcome your thoughts on this still-developing situation. 
Thanks, Betty, a new EV owner. Betty, thanks so much for writing in with this question. These are, these are, you talk about changing times, you talk about changing etiquette. This is one of the newest things happening. First of all, much like the issue with airline seats and reclining, which has been so recently popular in the media, this is an issue that is developing and the people who designate that spot and what it is for, I think, should be setting the, the expectation about what should be happening in that spot. I think that would be helpful at this point in time. So if you pull up to the EV station and there's a little sign that says, please, you know, use the app for the timer that, and then come and remove your car or feel free to use the spot for as long as you need to. You know, we have five EV spots available, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Only use for charging. Exactly. Whatever it is. I do think that owners of those spaces should be helping to direct people as to the best way to use them. When that doesn't happen, which is the situation many EV owners find themselves in now, the questions that you are asking are really delicious questions. They're the perfect ones. And they show that you can't just have one rule for everything. It can't just be remove as soon as you, you know, are done charging. Although that is kind of the basic rule. Like that is the thing that lets the most EV users recharge the fastest. And that is the purpose of this spot. But I like the question of what if you're in an area where that's going on. What if you're out to dinner and charging the spot? Does this mean that some of the etiquette is you just don't recharge when you go to something that's going to take longer than the recharge will? Like maybe that's not the time to park your car in a recharge spot. It's a fascinating question. Dan, EV owner, dissect this for us. I'm over here fist pumping (laughs) and sort of air high-fiving Lizzie because I couldn't agree any more about how intelligent these questions are and the way you're building the scenario. I also loved Lizzie Bose's baseline that really these spots are best used for charging cars and it's so convenient when you're needing a charge to be able to find a spot with an open charge station. And having said that, there is this game where it's not a perfect system and you have to know the rules to know when and how to break them. So if you've got in your mind that idea that this is a shared resource and you want to do your best to make it available for the most people possible and you adjust your decision-making in accordance with that baseline understanding, you're going to be in pretty good shape. If you show up and you're 95% charged and you know you have a full afternoon of shopping, probably not the best time to plug in to get that 5%, 100%. 2% <laughs> left and that's going to happen in 15 minutes and then spend the entire afternoon. Right. At the same time, if you're getting kind of low, if you're talking 20 percent, 30 percent, and it's going to take an hour and a half and the movie's two hours, I think you might go for it. So you start to make intelligent decisions based on that baseline, but it's it's not a rock-solid rule where someone's going to walk by, chalk your tire, and get your car towed 10 minutes after the charging is done. Yeah, and I think what's going to get really interesting with this in terms of just simple internal monologue, frustration, etiquette, stress that we deal with are going to be those moments where you go into the store and you do have, let's say, a 30% charge on your vehicle. So you really do want to charge it up at least to even get you to 75. Maybe that's how you need to get home and get through the rest of your day. And your trip into the store that you're at that has the the parking the the EV station at it you know it takes 15 minutes but the charge is going to take a little longer or vice versa the charge ends you know in the 20 minutes that you're in the super you're in the store for half an hour and so the car's just sitting there 
I was recently talking with a reporter from The Atlantic about the idea of late arrivals and grace periods. And so I'm going to be really curious to see what the grace period is around EV charging and and also whether or not you know when someone's vehicle is fully charged up and can tell that it's just been sitting there for half an hour or for 20 minutes or for five minutes. And what's going to start to get people feeling aggrieved? There's going to be a pendulum that swings and we're going to find where it is. But we don't have that answer yet because it's still so new. There was definitely another piece of advice that I was hoping to get to that you started to touch on, which is I think a lot of it has to do with managing your own reactions to what you find. Yeah. Yes. If you arrive and the three spots are taken and it looks like two of them are completely done charging before that little anger voice is going off in your head. Yes. And <laughs> we've had a few etiquette questions about parking lots that didn't have anything to do with <laughs> EV charging. So these are um, etiquette intense, etiquette fraught situations. <laughs> Before you surrender to that uh, angry voice, judgmental voice that you remind yourself it could be you on the other end of that charging cord at some point in the very near future that we give each other the latitude and space and we understand that it's going to require a little something from all of us. And in the spirit of that, I had a final piece of advice that I wanted to offer because I wrestle with this. I won't say on a daily basis, but at least (laughs) once a week. In the downtown garage in Burlington, there is one charging spot. And oftentimes that garage is a difficult place to find a place to park. If I don't need to charge, can I just pull in and it's empty and it's just waiting for me? And I just want to slide in there any amount of charging and just use that spot because it's so And are you in your EV convenient. or are you not in your EV? Oh, no, definitely in the in EV. In the EV. I remind myself that I would need to go find a parking space if I wasn't and that it's yeah. a possible thing to do. Yeah. And that those spaces really are best used for people that are going to be charging. So – The third bullet question was, if the parking location is popular, should I leave the charge station if I'm charged already, if I'm going to be there for a long time? And I say challenge yourself. Maybe give it a shot. Yeah, do it. Maybe do it. Maybe vacate that spot for someone else who's really going to need it and under. Take I don't that think difficult. You're saying maybe I think you're saying do it. I think you're saying go for it. Like embrace it. Embrace it if you can. And it's Not such a maybe, pain embrace. to say. Oh, I'm going to go out and find a parking place in this difficult place to find a parking space. But it really is. It's one of those random acts of kindness that may never go rewarded, but might make you feel really good. It might make you feel like a really responsible community member in that new world of electric vehicles. Betty, thanks so much for the question and enjoy your new car. So that's the real story of the cool hot rod. The one-time hazard that has become a brand new, safe, progressive American hobby. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you love Awesome Etiquette, consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesome etiquette.
You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing you help keep awesome etiquette on the air. This week, we have a really fun extra piece of bonus content for the Awesome Etiquette Patreon site. And we are doing something really special. We're opening it up for all of our listeners to take a listen to. So jump on over to Patreon and listen to a little three-question interview that our assistant, Bridget Dowd put together. She asked Dan and I some non-etiquette questions, and we hope you like our answers. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we hear from Dee on basically every thank you note segment that has occurred. The way that I motivate myself to write thank you notes is to not deposit a check or put cash in my wallet until I've written the thank you note. I generally receive these gifts in the mail, so I keep the envelope with the card and gift until I write out my note, which has the added benefit of keeping the return address handy. This would totally work with more physical gifts, such as not taking tags off of clothes or opening packaging until a thank you note has been sent. I hope this helps others. We always love a little thank you note feedback on awesome etiquette. Anything to encourage getting them out the door and done well. I like the tip. Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to continue with our series on the top 10 most searched content on the emilypost.com website. And we are up to our number five most searched article, and that is the formal place setting. Not a big surprise to find it so close to the top of the list. The fundamentals for the formal place setting are so very similar to the fundamentals for the basic and the informal place setting. The core concepts remain the same. The location of the forks on the left-hand side of the plate, the knives and the spoons coming in that order on the right-hand side, the bread blade on the left, the drinks on the right. These are all going to stay remarkably consistent no matter what level of formality you're setting the table for or what your dining expectation is. What? Thank goodness for that, too, because, oh, does it make it so easy when you find yourself unexpectedly in a formal dining situation that you've never been in before. There are settings I haven't seen. It's going to happen one day. It's going to be in front of me. And to have that commonality between most settings is a real comfort to know. And what are we talking about with really formal dining? Well, sometimes it's about the number of stars on the restaurant and people are measuring the location of the silverware in relation to the edge of the table and the plate and the plush of the carpet is a certain height. <laughs> sometimes totally. we're talking about a number of courses. Sometimes yep. we're talking about, oh, a meal where you're going to be presented seven or nine or more waves of food coming to the table. Maybe it's the number of servers, the possibility of two servers attending to every person sitting at the table dining, and then someone managing the table. A formal dining experience can be uh, so many things, <laughs> so many things and so incredible it can be such a treat. If you haven't had an opportunity to do that kind of a dining experience, I say go for it. Give it a try and don't let something like nervousness about navigating the place setting be the barrier to entry into that kind of a fun experience. So the big question that people have is what utensil do I use with which course and 
the answer is really simple, that you're going to work your way from the outside of the place setting towards the center in the same way you would with a four-course meal if you're presented with a seven-course meal. And this works whether you're navigating the place setting in front of you or thinking about setting your own dining room table for a meal with more courses. As you work from the outside of the place setting in, you're going to use the utensil for the course that's presented. At the end of that course, it's most likely going to be cleared with that course. So you're talking about just a consistent working with the utensil that's presented to you. It's the easiest to grab. Yeah, I was going to say, it's furthest out. It's easiest to grab. There's no like, if I move this one, will the others move? (laughs) If there's going to be escargot and a special clamp is required to hold your snails, they'll bring it out for you. Or it will be presented as the dish is presented in a way that it will be obvious that that's what it's for. One of my little tips about really formal dining is don't ever be scared to talk to the person who's managing the table. In some ways, that's what they're there for. Oftentimes, they'll be describing the food as it's presented, Mm -hmm. and they're the perfect person to say, you know, I haven't ever done this exactly. How do you use this? Or how would you recommend eating this if you don't want to ask specifically how to use or hold a particular utensil? And if it's really not the appropriate place or you feel too self-conscious to ask, watch what everyone else does. That's the big one for me is I always just watch what everyone else is doing and I try to just delicately do that as well. When it comes to these formal situations, I mean, you do, you eat from the outside in, but the typical order is usually that we're dealing with an appetizer, a first course, a fish course, an entree, and a salad. Sometimes there's a soup course that's in there as well. Sometimes you might even get things like those palate cleansing courses, a mint ice cream or something like that. Those are the kinds of things that could show up. (laughs) But for the most part, it's actually not that unfamiliar from a basic appetizer, entree, dessert, there's just a couple more added in in between. Sometimes you'll see more glasses set on the table Mm. as well. And the same logic is going to apply to the setting of uh, glasses or stemware as applies to the utensils that you're going to use to eat your food. So you're going to work your way from the outside in. A pretty common configuration here is some sort of champagne flute for a little pre-meal Uh, toast or sip, and then wine glasses that are appropriate for the type of wine that will be served with each successive course. Again, arranged from an out in an outside-in format with the water glass on the inside most likely. The other slight difference that you might encounter in the place setting at a really formal meal versus a more informal meal is that oftentimes there's a charger on the table when the meal begins. For those that don't know, what's a charger? So a charger just looks like a big plate. That's all it is. It's a big plate. (laughs) And the formal dining concept that the charger is meant to fulfill is that you never left the space in front of a guest empty at the table. So it was just something to occupy that space when people sat down. You give them an empty plate, you know, because that just makes so much sense. (laughs) Sometimes we just do things. Oftentimes in the middle of that plate, there'll be a napkin. Sometimes it'll be somewhere else, but oftentimes it'll be on that charger. You don't have to worry about what you do with the charger. Sometimes early courses are set right on it. Sometimes it's cleared as the initial courses arrive. As the food that's being presented is on bigger and bigger plates, that charger will probably disappear as those larger plate courses start to arrive. Something else that comes up with the really formal place setting is the rule of three. And we have our great-great-grandmother, Emily Post, to thank for the rule of three. When Wait, you mean she just, like, made it up? She invented 
This this one's just straight up. I'm declaring a rule. This is going to happen. This is for simplicity's sake. Yes. <laughs> Go M. <laughs> so at the turn of the century, this is 1800s to 1900s, the table setting was getting just more and more... Ridiculously elaborate. I was going to say Baroque, but yes, r- ridiculous would be another way to describe it. Unnecessary. <laughs> People were setting the table with utensils for every course, and the place in front of you would extend like like wings in, in both directions. <laughs> you could fly away with your silverware. And Emily just thought it was preposterous yeah. and said, you know what? No more than three of any type of utensil should be set on the table no matter what you're going to be serving. But what about the fish fork? Because I'm thinking we have appetizer, we have entree, we have dessert, or maybe we have first, you know, appetizer, first course uh, entree course, and then this fish fork makes four. Well, people listened to Emily and they said, okay, we'll only <laughs> set three forks on the left-hand side of the plate, but we'll call that oyster fork a specialty utensil and we'll sneak it over on to the, the right side. side. That's why it goes on the right So that's why you sometimes see something that looks like a fork over on the right side. Someone's trying to observe the rule of three, but also get a utensil that you might need onto the table. It's also typically a fork that you would naturally pick up with your right hand for that course to begin anyway. You know what I mean? It's like you're not typically using a knife with it ever so it works out yeah yeah if you needed more standard forks than the three that are set on the table they will be brought out with the course that requires them so again no need to count tines or remember little nursery rhymes about what different forks look like thank you julia roberts and pretty woman (laughs) for confusing people You just continue that process of working your way from the outside in unless a specialty utensil is presented. And this is why when I'm looking at on our website the diagram of the formal place setting that we have, you don't see the dessert fork and spoon at the top of the place setting because that would indeed make four out throughout the whole meal. And so that ends up being brought out at the end of the meal when you need it and everything else is cleared away as well. So it's almost like there's a resetting for dessert. And I think that's a that's a distinctive difference in the table setting when we go to that most formal level. I would be remiss if I didn't mention before we wrapped up our discussion about some of the the special things about a really formal place setting, if I didn't mention place cards that often (laughs) times it's the whole aesthetic of the table that really starts to establish the level of formality and whether that's candles, whether that's a centerpiece, whether that's a runner that's part of your whole All presentation. Those place I've cards. I've glitter and confetti on my tables. <laughs> but no, place cards, you were right. The place cards themselves kind of, they they define that space, who's going to sit there. There's a certain little like flourish to them, a personal touch. They do bring a lot of personality to the table. Is now the time where I shamelessly mentioned that we have some in the Emily Post Garden collection by Issa Salazar. You could do that. At issasalazar.com. Okay. But this is this is great. This is a wonderful dive into an experience that not many of us get to have very often in life. I mean, I can probably count on one hand the number of times, probably count on like three fingers, the number of times that I've actually experienced an, a really elaborate, highly formalized dining situation. And it, it does feel good to have the confidence both to attempt at setting that situation for my guests as well as to navigate it when I find myself in it. Happy dining, everyone. I hope you find something adventurous out there to give a try. And 
definitely come back next week for our fourth most searched topic on the Emily Post website, and that would be our attire guide. No surprise there. The rules are simple and are based on your hostess's consideration for you. Put your napkin in your lap quietly. Fancy flourishes are disturbing to those around you. No need to be uneasy about a long line of silverware. The first piece you use is placed on the outside, making it easy for you to pick up without spoiling the place setting. Automatically, the next piece you use is on the outside, making it easy to be sure of using the right piece for each course as it is served. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you are seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. And today, we hear from Alix. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I hope this email finds you well. I am passing on a wonderful experience that happened to me recently when I was on a solo trip to Southern California. I was sitting on the rooftop of a wonderful beachside restaurant in La Jolla. I had been sitting at the bar enjoying the gorgeous weather and delicious food. And the couple next to me struck up a brief conversation where I learned they lived in the area and that we all found Ragdoll cats to be adorable, among other things. They soon left after, and my waiter came up to me and said, the couple sitting next to you just took care of your entire bill. I was so pleasantly surprised and grateful for the kind hospitality gesture from these two strangers. I definitely plan on paying it forward the next time I find myself talking to a visitor of my hometown. Thank you very much for everything that you do. Oh, Alex, thank you so much for passing this on. You just gave me an idea, sort of an aspirational idea. It would <laughs> be so nice to do that for someone visiting Vermont. Thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers on social media or however you like to share awesome etiquette. You can send us questions, feedback, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, leave us a voice message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette, as well as the Emily Post Institute. Please do consider becoming a sustaining member. You can find out more about that by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. And this is the week to give it a look because you will find that special interview with Lizzie and me. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It does help with our podcast ranking, which helps new people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.